Welcome to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors, presented by FMG Suite. Listen to interviews with the movers, shakers, geniuses, and innovators of the financial advisory world. Visit FMGSuite.com to discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory. And now, without further delay, the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors. Hi, everybody. Mike Woods here, one of the founding members of FMG Suite. Welcome to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors presented by FMG Suite. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Kyle Hoppy, who is the founder and CEO of Backstop Compliance. First up on the podcast, Kyle and I talk about the new SEC rule that expands the type of advertising and marketing tools that RIAs can use. The SEC announced this change in mid-December, so many firms are just starting to look at them and what's inside. FMG's new acquisition, 20 over 10, is doing a webinar on January 28th about the new SEC rules. So if today's podcast raises any questions, I would encourage you to join the webinar. Samantha Russell will be the host, and she's been putting together an action-packed webinar for you. So sign up. Kyle and I finished the podcast today with a discussion on regulation best interest and what's next for the law. Some are expecting the law will stay the same, but others see a new round of changes. Kyle offers his insight, which I'm certain many of you will find interesting. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Spread the word. Kyle, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to join the podcast today. Well, thank you. Hi, Mike and everybody listening. Uh, just want to say thank you for having me on. I'm honored to be uh, here today with you and the wonderful people at FMG. Well, we're looking forward to it. Kyle, you know, I, I tell you, I had to chuckle when I read your homepage and it said, uh, no more hearing no, no, no from your compliance department. Boy, how often have I heard that, <laughs> how often have I heard that over the years? Uh, and, but, you know, to read that Backstop Compliance is built to be a partner to advisory firms and fintech companies to build that culture of compliance while growing to take care of their clients. You know, that that, that really resonated with me that uh, what what you're looking to do with your firm is to kind of build compliance into the culture so it becomes more of a natural extension rather than the no, no, no department. Uh, that doesn't seem like a that doesn't seem like a sustainable model to me, but uh, um, take a few minutes here and give listeners an overview of Backstop Compliance. Okay, yeah, we're happy to. So, you know, I constantly heard no when I was an advisor, as well as when I was in the compliance department. And you get to a situation where you just hate seeing advisors lumped together because of the bad actions of a few. And with all the advisors I've worked with in my career, uh, in my experiences, they're just simply trying to run a business and take care of their clients. So I believe compliance needs an educational approach and a problem-solving approach uh, we cannot eliminate all the no's, but let's come up with alternative solutions and a detailed response as to why something cannot be done. Sure. Most advisors right. just need coaching and guidance on the ever-changing world of compliance. They don't want to spend all their time reading regulations. That's what compliance professionals are for. Yeah, it's not what they do. It's not they're not comfortable with it. It's uh, much like marketing. They you know they uh, they they're okay with it, but they prefer to be most of the advisors I know, the reps that I know, they're more comfortable with that client interaction, that 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 moment where they where they're working with people and getting connected with people. That's that's their sweet spot. That's their bread and butter. Exactly. And that's why I started Backstop to provide advisors tools and training so they can run their own firm's compliance and have a trusted resource they can rely on. Um, we help them get set up, um, rewrite policies and procedures, do mock audits, and be a trusted resource for them. People outsource to compliance all the time, 
but are they truly a business partner with you? Are they dedicated to your success? Right. So if not, why have them? Gotcha. So we start with an initial audit to assess risk and work from there to help build a culture of compliance within the firm and help maintain that culture. It all gotcha. starts at the top. Having a good culture of compliance allows for the firm to grow and do everything necessary to be successful and off the radar of regulatory agencies. So I have a breakdown of my services offered at backstopcompliance.com. And I try to be as active as possible on Twitter. At uh, Kyle Hoppy is my personal. At backstopcc is the business on one. And that's the best place I try to put out content and ideas and mainly just pictures of my son and our dog, Finn. <laughs> Trying well, to bring some liberty to it. Well, now I have now I have to now I have to I have to get to your Twitter handle because uh, yeah, uh, kids and kids and pets are right in my sweet spot. So, all right, so so Kyle, for today's podcast, we're really gonna uh, really kind of hit two areas. I think uh, we'll switch back and forth between broker dealers and RIAs, but I wanted to start off with the RIAs because that's where. Um, that's really kind of where the, uh, the the most recent movement has been. Um, as you know, late last year, the SEC announced some new rules to extend the type of advertising and marketing tools that RIAs can use. It was the it was the first time in forty years that the SEC looked to modernize rules. So, um, anytime you get somebody moving after forty years, that's a great thing. Uh, it's just it's awesome to see. So, uh, give us give us your insights into the new rule and and touch on how it may or may open doors for advisors to use testimonials, endorsements, and third-party ratings. Well, first, I'm excited just to see regulators modernizing the advertising rules, getting into the 21st century. Anytime a bureaucracy can move forward is a positive. And the idea that advisors no longer have to hide from the nice things their clients say about them is very sure. positive, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. So many I agree. times... Just a friendly thank you or a, a friendly, hey, I love working with you uh, type post on social media could come down to, to bite advisors in the rear end during an audit. So having that extra leeway is, I think, going to be one of the biggest benefits out of this. Gotcha. Now, in regards to the actual rules around the testimonials, um, there are going to be general prohibi uh, prohibitions that advisors need to be aware of. Um, they really boil down to ensuring that the statements being made by the client are true. They don't admit anything. And there's no cherry picking or anything that's misleading. For me, I see it really no different than any of the everyday marketing and advisor will use. If you wouldn't put it in an advertisement that mirrors what the testimonial is saying, I would never use it. Gotcha. Testimonials need to be fair with no misleading. So the number one thing is those testimonials that advisors plan on getting is you have to vet them to make sure they are true and you don't admit anything. Right. So this then opens the door for advisors to leverage clients in their marketing and be able to point to solid pillars in the business community or just their community in general to share their experiences working with that advisor. So we know in retail that market uh, retail market that consumers rely heavily on reviews and ratings. If this will transfer over to professional services, not really known at this time, but again, we're moving forward, which is always positive. Always positive. Yeah. That I, being said, 
you know, sorry. Uh, that being said, I see the use of strategic testimonials as a powerful tool for specific advisors to bring in potential clients in the door and hopefully help them become clients. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a, it's a, um, uh, it, it, it is always interesting when, um, you know, uh, uh, consumers are so accustomed to when they go to a website, say, of any type of store or something they would see, they're, they're used to checking them out on Yelp and getting uh, getting ratings and what have you. And uh, uh, that that doesn't exist with financial advisors, uh, RAAs, or broker-dealers. But it sounds like this this at least cracks the door a bit. Yes, it does. And, and in fact, for third-party ratings, I mean, I'll be the first to say I'm not an expert on those services. I'm not a marketer. Um, I wish I was because I'd be probably more successful in everything. But I'm already having conversations with marketing professionals and advisors out there about using um, a third party for rating services going forward. And for me, they fall in with the same category as testimonials. You have to, again, make sure that you disclose who the uh, third party is is uh, administering the, um, excuse me, whoever the third party is using um, as the rating system, what their methodology is, making sure that reviews are not cherry picked to only be sent to your top five clients or clients that are family members. Gotcha. Uh. It all comes down, all compliance, all marketing. It comes down to transparency. When using testimonials or ratings, the advisor needs to ensure that nothing being presented is false to the best of their knowledge. And there aren't conflicts of interest. And if there are, they need to be disclosed. Anything that a potential client should know about the testimonial that might change their mind about it needs to be disclosed to them, whether if the person was paid to give it, it's an in-law or a sibling with a married name, proof that clients are giving the testimonial are not affiliated and are doing it on their own is the most important factor for putting these out there in a compliant way. Gotcha. Yeah. The, uh, so the devil's in the details a little bit. Let me, let me, let me move you to this one. Who do you see adopting first? A large RIA with compliance resources and clout or a smaller RRA that's looking to gain a marketing edge? For me, I see smaller RIAs or more specifically RIAs with a specific um, specialization or nature market being the first to adopt. Mm, Smaller ones, I think it's an equalizer to the larger regional firms. You can now have a client come in and give a testimonial that, hey, we are Main Street investors. We're not Wall Street. And you know what? My advisor gets that. They're taking care of me, mom and pop, instead of corporate America. That can really resonate with other Main Street prospects. On the other side. Yeah, I I was going to say, I would have... I would have guessed it would have been the other way because the larger RIAs got more resources, more money to throw at something like this. Whereas if a, a smaller RIA takes a position or it does something like this and it gets uh, tripped up in an audit, uh, it could it, it it could take them down a bad route. So kind of exactly. So I think larger firms will get there, but as we know, size creates bureaucracy, red tape, and sign offs. Bigger firms oftentimes have a bigger regulatory target on their back. So they might really take a look at this and and go slower at it and maybe phase it in with specific advisors over time. They're going to have to really look at the risk reward of what a testimonial could bring them. It could bring them good assets, but it could also create a real regulatory target for them that 
the SEC or their state is going to want to know. So I think that the smaller ones, without that red tape, will adopt it faster and jump into it, especially if they are serving um, a specific market. So best example, if you have an advisor that specializes in medical professionals, Mm -hmm. now you can have an esteemed or even just an everyday medical professional uh, come out and say, for example, hey, I work with Mike. He understands the complex financial lives of medical professionals. That adds proof and verification to a marketing slogan. How many websites do you go to or how many pitches do you hear from an advisor that says, I explicitly serve XYZ community? They all say it. I've seen everybody specializes in doctors or dentists or entrepreneurs. Well, now you can actually put some proof behind that. Mm -hmm. Hey, I work with medical professionals. Here's one saying so. So I think that that market is going to be the biggest one to get into testimonials because I think that one will be the one that moves the needle the most compared to just, here's a good guy in the community that works with me and he likes me. So it's, it's, it's helpful, but I think the niche getting into that is going to be the biggest uh, winner in the testimonial game. Sure. Gotcha. And uh, with all the, with all the caveats around it, that the, really the, the testimonial that comes along like that, it, 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 can it be solicited? Could I solicit it from one of my clients and say, Hey, I need, I'm collecting testimonials. Could you give me one? Or does it have to be uh, come without any type of um, uh, uh, prodding or provoking? So it's a lot still coming out. Um, I believe they're going to be solicited. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I highly doubt uh, advisors' clients are following, uh, hey, I heard the SEC is allowing testimonials. Can I give you one? So (laughs) I think it's going to be part of of, uh, an annual meet or a a meeting with your clients and your review. Good advisors are always asking for referrals, and I think they'll start soliciting their top clients that they think might help them for testimonials as well. So, uh, all right. So I, I want to throw a, a little bit of a curveball at you. Um, what can I do to get that? Can I give them a coffee mug? Can I give them a Starbucks card? Um, has, is, is, do you see anything in the, the rule that suggests there's a, um, a well, quid pro quo, for example? I, I Quid pro quo is going to have to be disclosed. And I think that that's going to be the biggest barrier um, for some of the, you know, quote unquote, celebrity style endorsements Mm -hmm. um, or anything that has to be paid. Um, I take a big belief that that falls under the conflict of interest. You need to know if that person that's giving that testimonial is getting anything in return. As a compliance professional, I always fall on the, I would rather disclose more than less than have something come out later. Right, exactly. So it's going to fall down. If, If it's going to be a Starbucks gift card or a cup of coffee, that's probably not going to need to be disclosed. But if you start getting into lowering of fees or entering into the cash, non-cash limits of giving to clients, to be honest, I would avoid it at all costs. Just yeah. if you have clients that are willing to give it to you, do it. If you have to pay for it, it it's not right for your business. Yeah, it sounds like you get on a pretty slippery slope there. You know, when I first read the new rule, I immediately thought back to years ago when FINRA cracked the door for reps to place third-party rating agencies on their website. Yelp, for example, there was there was a notion that I could put Yelp on my website. Um, 
the Finner clarified saying that, you know, the, 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 you have to be distanced from that third party, meaning you can't influence any of the ratings that went on there or any of the, the information that came back and forth. And really when FINRA made that clarification, many people stepped back from it because uh, just of what you're talking about, the, uh, the, the bookkeeping and the regulation and the guidelines and the disclosure. Do you see any similarities here? Yes, I think it's almost exactly the same. When you, if you want to go through and, and find a third party to do a, a client questionnaire and use that rating on your website and the marketing materials, you're going to have to disclose that you can't influence it, that it goes to everybody, and that a third party is the one managing the results and providing that to you, that you have no skin in the game other than you're paying for the service. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's going to see for the compliance purpose, is, is that going to be worthwhile then? It's going to be additional record keeping. You're going to have to have access to the methodology, who, who it went to, or at least access to that third party to be able to turn regulators and even you know clients or prospects that ask about it. If you want to be full tra- uh, have full transparency, you're going to have to have that information available which just adds to more record keeping, retention, and audit. So it's going to be interesting to see going forward if an advisor, you know, when they really get into the nuts and bolts of this, if it's going to be worthwhile to do some of those third party ratings. And if it's beneficial to them to get business, or right. is it just another? compliance issue that you're adding to your business for no reason other than everybody else is doing it. Right. Right. Okay, Kyle. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. An RIA is very excited about this, about taking advantage of this rule. And they call up backstop compliance and they say, Kyle, you got to help us. You want to create the policies and procedures manual to help us stay between the lines. Uh, Give us an idea of how you would do it, kind of touch on record keeping, auditing, all that inside baseball stuff that's really critical when the <laughs> comes knocking at the door. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, I really view it as all other forms of marketing. Um, so therefore, you got to go through to ensure what's being said lives up to the marketing standards that an advisor should already have in place. So hopefully advisors have policies and procedures on how they handle marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, if they don't, that's a completely different right. <laughs> you know, discussion. But for me, I would just add an addendum or an additional paragraph to those policies and procedures for testimonials and include a checklist to acknowledge that the kind words of the clients are true, not misleading or cherry-picked, and are reviewed for any potential conflict of interest. That way you maintain the testimonial itself, as well as a record saying you did the due diligence to make sure it meets up to the SEC rules. From there, I would put all testimonials to be read and signed off by the compliance professional, whether it's in-house or outsourced. Before you put them on on any websites or anything else, you need to have that review to make sure. Then I would file it just under the marketing records for retention. Just create a second tab for testimonials so they are easily accessible in case of an audit or if a potential client or the client itself would like to see it. Now, I would go a little bit above and beyond, and I would keep a record in the client folder or CRM as well. And I would also bring it up in annual reviews. Um, 
asking for the approval to, to keep using it ongoing. It shows your client that you respect their decision to endorse. And it shows regulators that you're having ongoing talks about not just your client's financial future, but that testimonial they gave you. You can sign off annually that my client still agrees with what they said, and we're going to continue to use it. The biggest thing is just notate, notate, notate. Put these notes in those meetings, and that gives you a pretty solid foundation for ongoing compliance for testimonials. A lot of compliance, especially in regards to audit, be organized and be proactive. Have policies and procedures available, and most importantly, follow them. Right. Having no policies and procedures is bad, but having them and disregarding them, I feel is even worse. <laughs> it's really, it's just like a business plan. Sure, right. If you go and do an annual business plan, you take the time, you, you go on the retreat, you know, you write it down, you put it in a nice folder. And then if you put it on your bookshelf and never touch it again, what was the point? Policies and procedures are exactly the same. Once you have them, you got to live it. You got to test it. You got to prove that you tested it. And that's that building of a culture of compliance. You don't want to rush your compliance right before an audit. You know, if you're addressing a bunch of compliance needs right after you get an audit letter, you're doing it wrong. But if you take these steps and you have that foundation, you're going to be a-okay. I spent some time auditing advisors myself, and I can tell you that the advisors that had everything ready to go and were following it, it was a much easier audit than the advisors who had no idea where client files were or, hey, I haven't checked emails forever and no, my 24 hasn't signed off. So be organized, be transparent, and actually do the compliance work. Gotcha. All right. All right. So that's a, that's a good, that's a, a good, good foundation for those policies and procedures. All right. So let's switch gears and go over to the broker dealer side. Um, last year, regulation buy rolled out and had some really far reaching consequences for <laughs> yeah. to say the least, uh, yep. uh, regulation by among other things, introduced the, the, uh, the CRS form form CRS, um, uh, FMG, for example, we went through and uh, purged the word advisor from all of our content. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we refer to people as representatives or professionals now. It's uh, uh, advisor is no longer synonymous with professional and representative. Exactly. Uh, we've got a new administration coming in, uh, the Biden administration coming in. What's your outlook for regulation by? Does it uh, stay the course? Does it get more aggressive? Does it stay alone? What do you think is going to happen with it? Get your, uh, it's time to get your crystal ball out. Yeah, I know. Wow. Oh, you know what? I think it's here to stay. It does have a potential, uh, maybe even a great potential uh, to get more aggressive. Um, if you just, you know, watching the, the primaries, that financial regulation is a major portion of the platform. So I, I wouldn't expect it to get any more lenient. Um, I truly wish that it stays the course for the near future and that any changes is going to be more on the helping to clarify certain aspects more than a teardown and rebuild going back to scratch and trying to figure out new regulations. For me, I see more regulation coming uh, to banking, credit, and lending. Uh, That side of the industry, it'll eventually start to bleed into the wealth management over time, but I see that credit lending banking has a, a much bigger reach um, to everyday Americans. And I think that that's going to be the first to see the regulatory 
additions and war oversight. Gotcha. Um, it's kind of it's really difficult to kind of get into that crystal ball now, especially in the you know the wake of the last week or so. There's going to be a lot of gridlock, and anyone who tries to say they know what's going to happen, I, I don't think really knows. So I think the best advice right now to broker dealers and advisors in the broker dealer networks have that culture play by the rules today and then adapt going forward um, sure. i have a i do have a feeling that us compliance pros are going to be pretty busy in the in, in the future though i think right. you're definitely going to see more regulation uh in what aspect and in, in what specific way only time's going to tell right well, we did. We got the regulation by what about two years after the Department of Labor changes. Um, so, uh, I, I, compliance departments certainly have been exercised over the last several years as far as updating policies and procedures and uh, getting material disclosed, and, and certainly um, uh, having chatted with many co compliance officers just to understand the uh, the new requirements they make of their individual reps. Do you see, do you see a, a, much of a departure from the existing rules as, as we move forward, as far as uh, maybe a, a specific aspect? One, one, of the part, one of the things about regulation by was uh, making certain and specific that um, all options are disclosed to an investor before they uh, make an investment choice. Um, do you see any, any tinkering on the edges? Yeah, I don't think it's safe to say, I mean, nothing, uh... Is, is off the table. Um, now, I feel that since we actually have uh, Reg BI coming out, um, we have at least a, a foundation. So hopefully there's no broad sweeping new rules or, or mass changes. These rules were a long time coming with a lot of input, a lot of negotiation. So I really hope it stays the course because it's been a tough rollout for BDs. It's been a lot of changes, a lot of investment to make that uh, come up to compliance. However, I do see what will grow, in my opinion, is going to be the conflicts of interest and the disclosures, as well as more detailed breakdown of fees, commissions, and other options. So we do see that showing up now in uh, with the you know, DOL rollover rules and Reg BI. I think it's going to get even even bigger. I think you're going to have to really start breaking down and seeing what are all the all the options for you to roll out of that 401k and what are the costs associated with it and the days of hiding costs within fund fees and different share classes I think is going to might come to an end. I think yeah. you're going to see a one page I would like to see a one page breakdown of what fees are disclosed and what fees advisors uh, are charging clients and what clients are being charged. Um, I think that that's what's going to be the next big thing to really come down is you want to buy this product or invest in this fund. Um, this is what's going to cost you on an annual basis. Plus, I charge you X. You're all in at Y. Please sign and acknowledge this. So I think that that will be one of the biggest I think more clarity and more disclosure around that's going to be the biggest changes coming up. Gotcha. Interesting. You know, one of the, the biggest challenges for BDs was really reconciling state law with federal law when it came to regulation BI. Uh, Massachusetts <laughs> and Nevada, for example, they, they crafted rules that were more strict than regulation BI uh, last year. 
How do you see that playing out? How do you see, uh, you know, it, and it's terribly challenging for an individual rep, not to mention their, their broker dealer to have, have reps in one state that have uh, more strict rules and in another state that have different rules. Exactly. How do you see all that coming together, Kyle? Well, I think the usual spe- the, the usual suspects, like you said, Massachusetts, Nevada, I've seen Washington add sure. some different. I, they're going to be, they're going to craft rules that are probably going to be more strict than the federal mandates. Um, that's just the way they are. Um, this has been going on since I joined the industry 15 years ago. Um, sure. I worked with an independent broker-dealer in compliance, and we dealt with Massachusetts more than any other state or probably any other regulatory body. Um, that's just the way it is. And it makes it very difficult for advisors who are in that state or might have to register in that state due to client demand and for BDs that are registered all over. Um, it's going to be trying to hit a moving target for a while. They're going to, with the support um, of the administration, I think they're going to have free reign to, to add additional regulations uh, without much pushback. And that's just what they're going to do. The question I see is, do they jump the gun and start making their own? Or do they wait and see at the federal, at the SEC, and or FINRA levels, what do they do first? And then do they pile on on top of that? But I can also see them if we see uh, gridlock in Washington, I can see states just making the jump themselves and saying, we're doing this. Here's more regulations on top of what we see. And BDs and advisors are going to have to deal with it. Um, the other big question I see is, in this political climate, do more states become like Massachusetts and Nevada? Or do they go more in an attempt to be more business friendly? Mm-hmm. So in really politically charged times, it's always been just a couple of the states that do this. The question is going to be, do, do more take a, a more heavy, heavy-handed approach, while others are trying to basically just do the bare minimum of what the law requires. Gotcha. You know, uh, I don't want to show my age, but uh, I wanted to. You know, you talked about Massachusetts always being right there. I remember Massachusetts back with E. F. Hutton. Oh yeah. Hutton all its troubles. Massachusetts was one of the first out there working uh, through the E. F. Hutton issues and um, yeah. uh, bringing yeah. those and kind of taking the lead on uh, uh, bringing uh, litigation against D.F. Hutton? Oh, yes. And, I mean, just like me, 15, you know, in the mid-2000s, even before the financial crisis, you know, I was working in compliance, and it was almost kind of a joke of we showed up on the Monday, uh, uh, in the morning and wonder what Mich- or Massachusetts wanted from us that day. You know, yeah. they were always <laughs> looking for something, and that's not going to change. So... Luckily for this industry, you know, it's been around for, for so long. Um, those states are going to do what they're going to do. The big question is, do states want to weigh into this and become more like Massachusetts, or do they want to have a more hands-off approach? And again, if we all had crystal balls, none of us would be on this podcast talking because we there would be multi-multi-millionaires <laughs> making money in the stock market. So it's kind of fun. It's fun to to try to guess and see what's going to happen, but... With so many moving pieces and just within the, just look how much of the, everything has changed just in the last week. You know, sure. it, it's going to be real tough to see, I, I, or to see and try to guess what's going to happen. And it's going to come slowly. You're going to have some real pushback. But I do really believe that additional financial regulation is going to be 
coming down down the highway and we're all just going to have to adapt and figure out the best way to run businesses within the new rules. Right. And the best way to do that is to be good in the rules today. So that way you're not starting from scratch. It's just adding additional requirements and reporting right? rather than starting brand new. So we'll see. And, And hopefully regulators work, continue to work with broker dealers and RIA advocates to figure out what's best for the industry as as a whole. We need to take care of the individual clients. We need to take care of mom and pop, but we also have to make sure advisors can have the tools and the freedom to do what's necessary to help their clients with that overarching review of, of a regulatory body, but they have to be able to meet the demands of their clients. So hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, we get there with a common sense approach and everybody just kind of moves along. I know rules come and go, mandates come and go, regulations come and go. And I've, I've seen a ton of them. And I remember when FINRA uh, came out with, I believe it was 2821 and variable annuities uh, needing principal sign off before going to market. Right. That was a game changer. You know, people that were not signing off on annuities were had to sign off on them because that's what the business unit needed. Um, and it was a terrible couple months to get, you know, situated in it, but it rolled back out. No problem. So anything we see will be a couple months to get used to it, but it'll just go as another rung on the ladder of regulatory compliance. Right. We'll get used to it and we'll move on. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, welcome to the world of the heavily regulated. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for offering your insights today. I really greatly appreciate it. It was great to get kind of a, a first glimpse into the SEC rules that are coming ahead. It's great to uh, get your forecast on uh, what's going to go on with BDs and regulation by. So thanks for sitting down with us and uh, uh, appreciate your insights. Well, thank you very much again for having me. It was an honor to be on your podcast and I wish you all the best and cheers to a happy, happy and healthy 2021. Amen to that. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Market Emotion podcast for financial advisors. If you found this episode informative, please share with your peers and colleagues. Visit fmgsuite.com to discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory. Subscribe and get updates delivered right to your inbox.